This episode of the My Latin Life podcast is brought to you by BitRefill. BitRefill is the best way to spend your crypto in Latin America. Purchase gift cards or mobile refills from more than 3,500 brands in 186 countries instantly, safely, and privately. Visit bitrefill.com for more information. Welcome back to another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. Since 2014, My Latin Life has been your trusted guide to traveling and living in Latin America. My guest today is John Richardson. He's a repeat guest. He's a counselor for U.S. persons abroad, the founder of expatriationlaw.com. And in today's episode, we're doing a deep dive into U.S. citizenship renunciation. What is it like to renounce your U.S. passport? What are the considerations involved in such a decision? So we're going to get into that in painstaking detail today. And we thank John for his time. John, how are you? Oh, I'm well. Nice to reconnect with you. Absolutely. I think this would be our third or fourth podcast, depends how you count it, because we did some kind of bonus episodes, or we had one on your your podcast, and then I redistributed on mine. So people, um, people will be a little bit familiar with you, but would you like to give a brief introduction as to who you are, John? Yeah, sure. My name is John Richardson. I live in Toronto, Canada. I am a, a lawyer who, you know, 15 years ago, the idea of uh, being an expatriation lawyer hardly even existed, but given all the changes in the laws and, you know, the general concern with mobility issues and plan B and all this kind of stuff, uh, there's huge interest in um, expatriation, which means either renouncing U.S. citizenship if you're a U.S. citizen or abandoning the green card uh, if you're a U.S. permanent resident. Uh, but I suspect that you want to talk primarily about the the group who want to renounce U.S. citizenship, although I'm happy to discuss any of it with you. Yeah, I know you're an expert in all things, but when you suggested this episode to me, you, su you suggested let's do a deep dive into renunciation, uh, which I think is great because I think uh, a lot of people uh, are always toying with this idea. I'm not sure how many people go through with it. But a lot of expats certainly toy with this idea. And for that reason, it's good to get some important information. And obviously, an hour of your time, if someone was to book it, costs, I don't even know, 350 bucks, 500 bucks, more. So, well, guys, I think it's this great is a very valuable. An hour without paying. I mean, everybody wants an hour without paying. So, there we go. Yeah. Um, this, is, this is the benefit of being a podcast host, is you get free therapy sessions. Absolutely. And, and I must say, okay, that the therapy aspect is definitely part of it, because what I what I actually think about this uh, is that the problem is not so much deciding whether to renounce uh, U.S. citizenship or not, but I, I've come to see the problem as trying to understand how to think about whether to renounce U.S. citizenship or not. Right. And that that's what's difficult. So, uh, you know, I think that might not be a bad uh, thing to incorporate or perhaps to start or something like that. So let, let's dive right into it, right into some of the juicy stuff. So I think one of the first big um, 
concepts that people need to understand is a covered versus what's it called non-covered expatriate can you differentiate those two categories well, i think i think the term is covered expatriate there i don't think there actually is a legal term for if you're not a covered expatriate okay um okay so basically the underlying principle is that why don't we start with this generally you do not leave the land of the free for free Okay. Uh, you know, everybody pays, uh, well, if we're talking about citizenship renunciation. Okay. That's what this is restricted to. Yep. All people wanting to renounce U.S. citizenship are paying a fee that's currently 2350 U.S., uh, although mm -hmm. I do believe it'll be reduced to $450 very soon. So that's good. Um, but a number of other people are also subject to an additional uh, fee or tax, which is the a, a, the exit tax, and that can make uh, renunciation a great deal more expensive. Uh, in addition, uh, there are other problems with the stigma of being a covered expatriate that we'll we'll also discuss. But let me tell you how one joins the club of covered expatness. Okay, and there's three ways you can do it. Uh, and, and what's very interesting is that, you know, as you listen to this, uh, think of this in terms of the objective. Really, if the U.S. thinks that it's losing money by your renouncing, they're going to want something in return. So the first would be uh, if you can't certify U.S. tax compliance for the five years prior to renunciation, you're a covered expatriate. Uh, U.S. citizenship is, after all, certainly far more than any other citizenship in the world about taxation, uh, given that it has citizenship taxation. Mm -hmm. uh, the second would be if you've been paying the United States an average of what I think is approximately, it varies from, there's, it's inflation adjusted, but which is approximately $190,000 a year in tax. In tax. Okay. They're going to think, oh my God. I mean, you know, we're going to lose 190000 a year if this person renounces. They better pay us something, right? And so, is that just in the most recent year, or is that you have to hit that benchmark for a couple of years? It's a five-year average. Five-year average. Okay. Okay. So, you know, to put it in context, if it's 190000 at the time of renunciation, five times one, uh, 190 is is uh, what you would look at over the 950. Yeah, so if it was zero, 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 one million, you're still covered expatriate if it's zero, yeah absolutely yeah okay. i mean you know and, th and this by the way a clue is one reason why people think of renouncing right you know be, you know if they think some you know massive income inclusion is kind of coming or something like that right okay um now i i might say also that that hundred ninety thousand uh, for Americans abroad, not many of them hit it because they have foreign tax credits to reduce their U.S. tax payable. Right. But for American citizens living in uh, the Gulf, you know, where they don't have income taxes, or in the United States, so there's plenty of them, plenty of them, right? Who, uh, you know, hit that. Okay. And the third and way, the third category, yeah, is the easiest to trigger, and that's having a net worth of two million U.S. dollars or more. Uh, and that is not triggered, okay? That is not uh, adjusted to inflation. So, you know, God, I mean, all you need is a pension and a, a house in Boston, New York, San Francisco, <laughs> or you know, you're you're or Toronto, or yeah. How do how do they evaluate that? Because most people who own a home 
are getting pretty close to that. How do they evaluate your net worth based on, you know, uh, assets that you haven't had a liquidity event on? Well, so what you would do, here's what I tell everybody is, well, uh, you know, if we think you're close to the $2 million, it's a fair market value test. You would go out and, you know, get maybe three letters of opinion from some sort of real estate agents. I mean, I'm actually a, a real estate broker as well, although I don't work in that area. So, you know, I know plenty of people to get easy access to that kind of information, but it is fair market value. It's not the tax assessment. So, you know, you want to get, uh, some opinions which are based on similar mm. things. Um, you're not required to get a formal appraisal. You're not required to get a formal appraisal. So you like self-report? Yep, absolutely. Uh, you know, the this this is basically you self-report on what's uh, the final document you file with the IRS. It's form 8854. Uh -huh. Google it. If anybody's listening, go to page two. You'll see a balance sheet, you know, which gives a, a list of categories of assets and what you own. So I guess a lot of people are self-reporting that they're at like 1.8 then. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people do self-report at 1.8 because they are at 1.8. Um, you know, in other words, what they'll do is that because they're worried about an audit or something, although I really must say that I've never had anybody audited on this anyway, but, uh, you know, they're so worried about it that often what they'll do is make gifts to a spouse or something to ensure they're below the $2 million. Mm. Uh, you know, or they don't want to come in at one million nine hundred and fifty thousand or something like that. <laughs> but well, bear in mind that you know there's certain kinds of assets where you know it's just the market value. You look in a brokerage account, you can see what the security traded on on such and such day, which is the date. Well, right. the Internal Revenue Code defines as the day of renunciation. The IRS in their notice looks at the day before. But either way, uh, those types of things are susceptible to definite value. Uh, things like real estate are not. So you want good faith, good faith estimates. Uh, if yep. the result of the good faith estimate is that it's putting you at, you know, 1950000 or something, then, um, you know, these are the people who consider making a gift, uh, you know, to get themselves below uh, the $2 million net worth. And by the way, uh, generally speaking, the gift should be made in the year prior to renunciation, not the morning of renunciation for technical <laughs> reasons that I'm Makes not sense. waste okay. time getting into. But uh, so I, I guess probably people's questions about uh, this category number three, like real estate. Yeah, you can wrap your head around it. You know, stocks that are publicly traded. I mean, it is what it is. I guess people's questions would probably be, what about crypto? And then what about um, what about private market securities like stock options? Uh, if they work at a startup, that's you know gonna gonna IPO in the future. Those, those right. I imagine those are the two biggest categories of. Well, those are those are two big categories for a certain group of people, a certain demographic. Uh, since we're talking about categories, before we get into that one. Let me talk about a very uh, common issue, which is uh, pension plans, okay? Um, you know, teachers, firemen, pension plans, and things like that. Mm. Uh, outside, you know, either inside or outside the United States, these have to be valued as well, okay? And At the present value of future cash right. flows? That's right, the present value of future cash flows, yeah. Ooh. Well, uh, you know, and, and this is... Uh, let me just say this so that to make this very, very clear, this is the single most dangerous area 
in expatriation, okay? Because if you're dealing with pensions, say I live in Toronto, Canada, as you know, and uh, the teachers uh, in the province of Ontario have fairly lucrative pensions or a university professor or something. Now, these are, are foreign pensions in the sense that they're not a U.S. payer. And if you're a covered expatriate, uh, basically the way the exit tax works is a deemed distribution of the commuted value of that pension. So this is incredibly dangerous. And I just want to say, I'm, you know, I'm really happy to do this discussion with you, but I want to make it clear that this is not a do-it-yourself project, okay, for, yeah. you know, for, for people with these kinds of assets. Because if you don't understand what you're doing, uh, mistakes can be very dangerous. Um, if it's a U.S.-based pension, then you can actually keep it, believe it or not. Uh, and uh, pay tax on the distributions. It's incredibly unfair. Now, shifting over to, you know, the, the demographic that you're more interested in. Okay. Um, there's a category. Now, what I just described, the basic teacher's pension is, is considered to be deferred compensation in the Internal Revenue Code. Mm -hmm. And not the crypto, but the other things you're talking about the question is whether they qualify as deferred compensation or not. And if so, uh, you know, they're subject to separate rules. Uh, they're, they're not treated as property, which is a deemed sale. Uh, you have to value them. You have to look at where they are. If they're in the United States, generally, you can keep them and pay tax later, generally. Mm -hmm. Okay, but you've got to be very careful. If they're not a U.S. payer, uh, it means big trouble. Uh, crypto is treated as property. Okay, so it should be valued, fair market value, deemed sale if you're a covered expatriate. Uh, you know, 23.8% tax on that, although there is an exclusion. Approximately the first 800,000 or so capital gains is excluded from the tax calculation. But if your question is, are they part of the two million? Absolutely, yes. Okay, cool. Um, so I guess just to summarize what we've gone over so far, if you you're a covered expatriate, if you hit any of these three categories, and if you are not a covered expatriate, you basically just pay the two thousand dollar fee or the four hundred fifty dollar fee. Yeah, you walk, and you're you and walk. you're and you walk. You're free to go. And people will probably say, okay, that's not bad, 450 bucks, 2,000 bucks. I got off pretty good because I'm not rich. Otherwise, if you hit any of these three categories in terms of uh, non-tax compliance or whatever, um, 190K average past five years or higher than $2 million net worth, then you're a covered expatriate. And now we have a whole bunch of, um, I guess, exit taxes to pay. Yeah, there's two consequences, okay? The first consequence is that you are subject to the exit tax calculation. Now, that may not resolve in any exit tax, okay, you know, depending on your circumstance. For example, this morning I was working with somebody who, uh, their, you know, their asset composition was such that they would not have paid an exit tax, 
okay, even even as a covered expatriate, interestingly, because they just didn't have, uh, you know, sufficient building gains or a pension, that sort of thing. But uh, if you are a covered expatriate, particularly if you're a U.S. citizen living outside the United States with a non-U.S. pension, uh, the exit tax can be very significant. In fact, the exit tax hits hardest Americans abroad uh, who don't have U.S. assets. Interestingly, it's 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 based on their their non-U.S. assets. Uh, the second consequence of being a covered expatriate, and this is very significant. It's a permanent stigma. And if as a covered expatriate, you then want to leave bequests in your will, or you want to make gifts to a U.S. person, meaning a citizen or U.S. resident, mm -hmm. then that citizen or resident is subject to a 40% tax on the value of the gift. And I would add that that is not a 40% tax based on the gift to the extent that it's based on assets that you owned on the date of renunciation, it's the total gift. So let's say somebody has a 2.5 million net worth, renounces as a covered expatriate, whether or not they pay an exit tax, 30 years later, they have kids who are US citizens, they leave them or they give them, you know, $100 million, mm -hmm. that's what, 40 million goes to the IRS. So there are huge incentives to avoid being a covered expatriate. Okay. So it's like, even after you pay your exit tax, even if you paid a huge exit tax, you're still a cons considered a covered expatriate for life. And there can be future tax liability in terms of inheritance tax and probably a bunch of other random tax taxable events, even though you've already left and you're no longer an American citizen. You sound astounded by this. I thought you were an American citizen. You should understand the sheer depravity of this. I, I, We have actually touched upon this either in our previous episode or the one I did with David L'Esperance. So we did touch upon this a little bit, but obviously worth hammering on well, this Well, let's point. do a deeper dive, okay? Let, let me go right back to square one and explain this, okay? Because this, what where this leads to is the family renunciation, Okay. This mm -hmm. is why families renounce together. It, it's in the 21st century, the family renunciation is a wonderful bonding experience, family bonding experience, right? <laughs> this episode of the My Latin Life podcast is brought to you by Language Blend, the new best way to learn Spanish. Language Blend focuses on what you actually need to live and get by abroad with daily one-on-one -on -one lessons, a dedicated texting partner. It's like living in a Spanish-speaking country without ever leaving home. Go to languageblend.com for more information. But let's say, okay, that you're a covered expatriate and let's say you have 5 million in assets, okay? And let's say you pay an exit tax on the value of those assets, the 5 million. Now let's say that uh, you have a U.S. citizen children or a U.S. citizen spouse, or you acquire a U.S. citizen spouse, you know, in the intervening years. Now let's say 30 years later, all of a sudden, you know, your net worth is a hundred million dollars. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which by the way, it may sound like a lot, but if you just relax for a minute and think about inflation, and starting with five million, I mean that's entirely possible, right? Hundred millionaire baby, let's go. Okay, 
So now let's say it is very common, uh, you know, for people in their wills or, uh, yeah, in their wills, you know, to leave their assets to their spouse and children. I mean, this goes on all over the world. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing, right? So we have this covered expatriate. Remember, once you're a covered expatriate, once a covered expatriate, always a covered expatriate. That's how you remember it. And especially if they make new rules. Well, we get to that in a minute. Okay, <laughs> okay uh, sorry. I'm jumping the gun. Well, you may think you're joking, but you're not joking. I'm sure they've introduced yeah. a bunch of new random stuff for covered expatriates over the, the years. The draft regulations on this. Okay, yeah. let's go through the story. So yep. $100 million, you're a covered expatriate. Now, as you may know, the normal rule in the United States is that you're not taxed uh, on the value of a gift when you receive it. Okay, you're not, that's not taxable income. You get a gift, it's not taxable income. Now, what they do in the case of receiving a gift from a covered expatriate is they reverse the rule. So now the recipient of the gift is taxed on the value of the gift and what, at what is currently a 40% rate, probably going up to 100%. But anyway, what's currently a 40% rate. So, uh, you know, let's say a U.S. citizen, 25 years old, $5 million renounces, 30 years later, for some reason, decided to marry an American citizen on his deathbed. Yes, I leave you my $100 million. Now, of course, the U.S. citizen is tax compliant and says, well, this is so wonderful. And now the first thing is, how do they find out about this? Well, because remember that this is a gift from a foreign person and gifts from foreign persons over 100,000 now will have to be reported. Mm -hmm. So the gift is reported. Okay. And because it's a gift, it's what's called a covered gift, right? Meaning a gift from a covered expatriate. Then that, the value of that gift, $100 million, is subject to a 40% tax. Is that clear enough? Or are you still disbelieving? Okay, 40% gift tax. 40% of the value of the gift. Now remember, okay, remember this. When the guy renounces, he's got $5 million. The other 95 million he's accumulated or she's accumulated in the next 30, 35 years. So the point is that the U.S. is claiming the right to tax that if it is given that 95 million, right, that was acquired after the person renounced, is claiming the right to tax that if it is given to a U.S. person, a U.S. citizen. Mm -hmm. So... You know, this is why there are huge incentives to not be a covered expatriate. Okay. So, okay, cool. That's probably enough about covered expatriates if you want to switch gears. Because, I mean, basically the bottom quite, line is... Not quite. There's one thing we need to add here. Okay. okay. And that is that there are certain people who can avoid covered expatriate status because of who they are. These are preferred citizens, okay? Ooh. Yeah. Now, and this is very important to know. If you are, now, so the question, we know, we know what happens if somebody's a covered expatriate. Bad person, needs to be punished, tainted money, all this stuff. 
but there are certain people who can avoid covered expatriate status. Now, the U.S. has citizenship taxation, which is part of the problem of U.S. citizenship. But what's fascinating is the U.S. also has citizenship non-taxation. And here's how that works. If you're a dual citizen from birth, if you're a dual citizen from birth, you haven't been living in the United States for a designated amount of time, and you're tax compliant for the five years, and you are presently a tax resident of the country of second citizenship, then you can avoid being a covered expatriate period, regardless of net worth, regardless okay. of how much tax you paid to the United States. It is amazing. So what you need to be telling your people who are mm -hmm. doing their life planning yes. is this. Now, this advice is worth way more than my annual, you know, my hourly fee. Okay. This advice is priceless. Okay. Make sure your kids are born with dual citizenship. Have them born in Mexico, for example. All right, because that will give them dual citizenship from birth. And that means that they become a preferred class of U.S. citizen who can avoid being covered expatriates as long as they file their U.S. taxes. What do you think of that? I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm in Mexico right now. Well, there you go. And if, you, if you're ever thinking of having any children, maybe Mexico is the place for them to be born. What do you think? I'm, I'm way ahead of you. I'm way ahead of you. So um, let's repeat again what this looks like. So you have to be a tax resident of the country of your dual citizenship. So let's just say my kids are born in Canada or in Mexico they have to be a tax resident of those countries, or could they be a tax resident of, say, Paraguay? No, nope. you have to be a tax resident of the country of dual citizenship. So let's mm -hmm. say hypothetically, okay? Mm -hmm. Hypothetically, we have an individual who's a dual U.S.-Canada citizen. Mm -hmm. okay? Now, let's say that person has a child born in Mexico. Now, now let's look at what happens here. All right. So born born to a US citizen parent, okay, assuming that the the US presence requirements have been met, the person will be a US citizen. Mm -hmm. That has its advantages up until a certain stage in life. As long as it is a first generation person born to a Canadian citizen abroad that person will be a canadian citizen mm -hmm. that person because born in mexico will be a mexican citizen right so this is three citizenships from birth now in order to make use the conditions or some of the conditions to make use of the dual citizenship exemption the exit tax would be that at the time of renunciation in addition to the non-U.S. presence requirements and tax compliance, the person would have to be a tax resident of either Canada or Mexico. For how many years? Um, 
That is not written into the statute. What is written into the statute is the number of years that you cannot be a resident of the United States, uh-huh. which is 10 of the previous 15 years. But let's let's not get too granular here because the more granular we get, I think the easier it is to lose sight of the general principle. Okay. The general principle, gold standard. Canada, U.S. citizen, have your kids born in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Or another country that gives you, uh, you know, birthright, you know, citizenship from being born in the country, this sort of thing. And this is absolutely unbelievable because what has happened here is that through citizenship taxation, the United States has created a preferred class of citizenship. Those who are dual citizens from birth have the opportunity to basically go through life without ever being a covered expatriate. Okay. Yeah, that's huge. It is. It is priceless. Priceless. In other words, the people who really get screwed are the patriotic Americans who trace <laughs> their 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 heritage right to the daughters of the American Revolution. So, uh, John, if I could ask you one or two questions there, um, would in order to say that you've been out of the United States for 10 of the past 15 years, you've been a U.S. citizen abroad. Does that mean that you're claiming the foreigner and income exclusion or no, that has nothing it, to do with it at all. Or, or what's what's the marker of I live I've been living outside right. the yeah. U.S.? Yeah. Well, under the current statute and. and you know, I have no idea who's listening to this podcast when, right? But under the current statute, your question is how how is it determined whether you've satisfied the not more than 10 or 15 year requirement, correct? Correct. So the answer is you look to the substantial presence rules in the Internal Revenue Code, which basically is a moving average of how many days you spend in the United States for the previous three years, et cetera. But, Uh you know, when you talk about the foreigner and income exclusion, uh, that is that's a filing uh, mechanism. So the way you file taxes, it Uh has nothing to do with tax. Right, right. I figure just be kind of a good guide. So the substantial presence, I forget exactly what it is, but it works out to about three months a year. Well. uh, The rule of thumb, the rule of thumb would be. Uh, that if you spend no more than 120 days a year Mm -hmm. in the United States, you're probably safe, okay? But, you know, it's very interesting because, you know, they have this sort of this this average, et cetera. I mean, it's a good reason to, you know, sharpen up on your arithmetic skills, right? I mean, you know, you need a lot of skills to be a U.S. citizen. Okay, but the, so the substantial presence is looking at the past three years, or they're just applying basically that same law or that same that same. Uh, so, so the law is the past ten years that for ten of the previous fifteen years, you can't have met the test for being a U.S. resident under the substantial presence test. Okay. Okay, and well, it's sort of like every year is like a look back thing. You know so what? Well, let me pull it up while we're talking. I, I kind of get it though. It's like if you've basically been less than four months a year for the past ten years, you're good. Yeah. Okay. So interesting. This thing about the 
preferred class of U.S. citizen is extremely interesting. This is something that we've talked a bit about. I think you and I in the past and me certainly on Twitter and on different podcasts saying the best version of American citizenship is an American born outside the United States so that you're almost like a secret American citizen because it doesn't say in your passport book place of birth U.S. citizen. And in that sense, it can sometimes be easier to open U.S. bank accounts or it's just not immediately evident that you're a U.S. citizen, which can be beneficial at times. Is that a question? Well, you can comment on that. Um, there's no question that a U.S. place of birth in your passport is a disability in the 21st century. I mean, you know, and no reasonable argument can be made to the contrary. Hmm. Because, you know, we've got this whole uh, fact of stuff out there, right? And, uh, you know, the banks are required to essentially be on the lookout for U.S. citizens. Uh, birth in the United States is, uh, is uh, creates a presumption of U.S. citizenship unless you have a certificate of loss of nationality. So, you know, there's all kinds of people uh, in Europe, for example, uh, I think particularly in Europe, because uh, as I understand it, European IDs uh, stay where you were born, who have all kinds of problems with this, right? Um, I mean, clearly, clearly you're better off uh, not having any identifiable uh, U.S. citizen characteristics. I mean, how could that possibly benefit you? I mean... Uh, you know, we're focusing mainly on access to financial accounts. There's no question. But I mean, everybody knows that, you know, the last time, you know, any kind of plane was hijacked, the hijackers never said, uh, well, all citizens of Paraguay stand over here. Yeah, that's the classic example, right? The 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 plane hijack example. Oh, <laughs> well, you hear, you know, many, many times. But I mean, it's the problem with this is that, you know, I presume you've read, you know, James Dale Davidson, The Sovereign Individual, an incredibly prescient book that was written in 1996. And, and he explains this rather well when he says that in the industrial age, the last century, U.S. citizenship was very, very valuable. In the 21st century, in many ways, I mean, this is, doesn't apply to people who just, you know, are born in the United States, happy there and want to live there forever, right? I mean, obviously, it doesn't apply to them. But if you don't want to live in the United States, United States citizenship is, is a significant disability. Mm -hmm. So let me ask uh, about this preferred class of U.S. citizen. And obviously, you like that, do you? I do like this a lot. I think it really fits in well with um, a lot of our, our worldview here at My Latin Life and, you know, the benefits of being a U.S. citizen abroad, which the further you go down the rabbit hole of the benefits of being a U.S. citizen abroad, the more and more it keeps stacking in terms of how much sense it makes. And again, more than 50% of my audience is American. And when you just stack all these things, the foreign income exclusion, oh, if you have a foreign corporation, no employment tax, blah, 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 you keep stacking all these things. And it's just more and more obvious that it's, it's the way to go in a lot of ways. Um, coming to a question. So we're talking about preferred class of U.S. citizen. And this and the the real benefit that we've been talking about is the the potential to be a 
not be deemed a covered expatriate if you would like to renounce in the future. Well, that's um, one benefit. Don't that's forget one benefit. Also have the benefit of being able to live in those other countries. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, Canadian citizenship is a very valuable citizenship. I mean, you know, it can be difficult living in, you know, under the tax regime, but you know, it is a valuable citizenship. I think that Mexican citizenship is going to become increasingly valuable. So it's more than that, right? I mean, there are independent benefits of having second citizenship. There's no question about that. But if it's done properly, it also, interestingly, turns you into the only kind of American citizenship citizen who's probably not under pressure to renounce if they don't want to live in the United States. Wow. One reason people renounce, okay, is this, is that, you know, they... They read, they read your Twitter feed or maybe they listen to a podcast I've done and they all of a sudden hear that, you know, if once they hit the two million net worth thing, they become, you know, subject to a certain kind of punishment, right? So they think, you know, I'm getting there, I'm getting there. Maybe I should get out now while the door is open, right? Mm-hmm. And there are all kinds of people who renounce, uh, you know, before they hit the two million net worth thing, because they're not at the two million net worth thing. But a Canada U.S. dual citizen from birth, who lives in Canada, is not under that same kind of pressure to renounce. So, part of the preferred status, why? Because all they have to be is tax compliant to avoid the covered expatriate status. Mm-hmm. They can make gifts to U.S. citizens, right, forever. And this is a this is a big issue in families, right? So, you know, you've got a family of, uh, well, here, let me, I'm just making this up, okay? But, you know, sure. you've got a family of, uh, okay, it all began when uh, somebody was, all right, so first of all, okay, uh, if somebody's a covered expatriate, they're subject to the exit tax, but they're also they also have the problem of if they leave a covered gift to a U.S. citizen, that U.S. citizen is going to be hit with a forty percent tax. Therefore, it's very valuable to be able to avoid being a covered expatriate. Okay, okay, you're not subject to the exit tax. Plus, because you're not a covered expatriate, you can make gifts to you and bequest to U.S. citizens. Okay. Okay. Now, let's make the example much more simple. Let's say we have uh, somebody born in Canada, making them a Canadian citizen from birth, to a U.S. citizen parent, making them a U.S. citizen from birth. Okay? So far, so good? Yep. So we are dealing here with a dual citizen from birth. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, the dual citizen from birth thing is relevant in the context of expatriation. Mm -hmm. It is not relevant in the context of paying your taxes every year. Mm -hmm. So let's imagine this situation. Okay, so you're a dual citizen from birth. Let's imagine that you have, say, $10 million in assets. You're above the $2 million. You're not going to be a covered expatriate as long as you can certify tax compliance for the five years. 
Hey guys, quick interruption to tell you about BitRefill. BitRefill is the best way to convert your crypto into gift card balances. These are gift cards that you can spend at Hotels.com, Airbnb, Nike, and many more. You may remember Joel Valenzuela, previous podcast guest. He's been living on crypto exclusively since 2015, and he's a big consumer of BitRefill. And so I asked Joel, I said, what do you like most about BitRefill? He said that he likes the instant delivery, the precise amount so that you don't have to juggle a lot of gift cards, and he loves the global selection. Nobody else has this much selection of gift cards, over 10,000 gift card options across hundreds of countries. Go to bitrefill.com to sign up, and you can also use the code MYLATINLIFE for 10% back off your first purchase. Go to bitrefill.com for more information. Yep. Okay. So you could expatriate, right, if you wanted to. If you wanted to, you could expatriate, avoid covered expatriate status, and make gifts bequest to U.S. citizens, okay, without their being hit with the tax. So far, so good? Yep. Now, that's all well and good in the context of expatriation, right? But that doesn't help the person on an ongoing tax basis. So let's imagine the person's, you know, living life, has a $10 million net worth, and knows in the next three years that they're going to have a, five, a big year, $5 million income inclusion. Or here, let me give you something even better. They're, they, you know, they want to sell their their uh, their estate in Ontario and they're going to have a five that they live in. Yeah, the, they're going to have the biggest liquidity event they're, they're of their life. They're going to have a massive liquidity yeah. event that's taxable in the U.S. but not in Canada. So far, so good? Yep. All right. Now, that person might very well consider renouncing U.S. citizenship prior to the liquidity event. Why? Because they're not, at, once they renounce, from the day after they renounce, they're not subject to U.S. taxation, right? Okay. Uh, that is on a non-U.S. source income, all right? So they might renounce, mm -hmm. but notice they have a $10 million net worth. But they can avoid being a covered expatriate because of their dual citizenship from birth status. So not only do they avoid the exit tax, but they sell their estate, which is their principal residence, say at a $5 million capital gain. They don't pay the U.S. any tax on that. It's not taxable in Canada. Then the person gives the five million they had plus the next five million capital gain to a U.S. citizen uh, child or whatever, that person will not be subject to the 40% tax. Why? It was not a covered gift. Why? The gift didn't come from a covered expatriate. Why? Because of the person's dual status from birth. So far, so good? But my point is simply this. That's an example that shows you how dual citizenship from birth has great value. Mm-hmm. Now, let's contrast that to, let me give you this scenario. Same person. Rather than having been born in Canada, the person was born in the United States, moved to Canada, say as a teenager, whatever, 
became a naturalized Canadian citizen. Every, all the rest of the circumstances are exactly the same. The only difference is the person's not a dual citizen from birth. So they're covered. So if they renounce, they're covered expatriate. Yeah. Okay. Uh, maybe they still want to renounce, you know, depending, right, on what the what the implications of that would be, but they don't have the dual citizenship benefit from birth, right? Mm-hmm. No, I get it. I get it. Um, so you see, this is how, I mean, it's, it's absolutely fascinating how these tax rules have created a preferred class of citizenship. Now, so you can see, to get back to part of my point, why dual citizens from birth are under less pressure to renounce. If you're not a dual citizen from birth, you're saying, oh, geez, you know, I better be careful. Uh, you know, once I hit that $2 million thing, I can't renounce without, you know, being covered expatriate, this sort of stuff, right? Uh -huh. But just because of the circumstances of their birth, the citizenship of their parent, perhaps, where they were born, things that are completely arbitrary, one person escapes this horror and the other is destroyed. <laughs> you know, Barack Obama once you know, made the kindest thing you could say, aspirational claim when he said the circumstances of your birth should never determine the outcome of your life. Well, I mean, it's pretty clear that the circumstances of birth of a U.S. citizen go a long way. Got it. Yeah, this is, this is huge and probably a uh, mindset shift for a lot of people. Well, um, and part of the problem with this is that people presumptively cannot believe the degree of the unfairness and depravity of the U.S. tax system. Uh, and this is, this is an extraordinary example of citizenship taxation in action. Mm -hmm. Because this is an example of an exemption from U.S. citizenship taxation that I would call citizenship non-taxation. Mm -hmm. Incredibly arbitrary, right? Incredibly arbitrary. In other words, you know, the absence or presence of these completely draconian results have everything to do with the circumstances of your birth and nothing to do with the circumstances of your life. So, you know, next time you meet somebody who says, I'm so proud to be a direct descendant of the Daughters of the American Revolution. I've never lived outside the United States, and I wouldn't want to. Your response should be, I feel sorry for you. You're not a preferred citizen at all. John, do you think um, unnerved by this? No, I wouldn't say unnerved is the word. I would say inspired. Um, <laughs> so let's just say most most people listening to this probably are not going to want to move to Canada and raise their kids in Canada and give their kids the benefit of Canadian dual citizenship. They're probably thinking something in the south, 
Latin America, something warm, maybe a tax haven, something tax free. Uh, I know it's hard to generalize, but what benefits do you see of, say, raising a dual citizen with a, you know, low tax dual citizenship versus a high tax dual citizenship? So instead of Canada or Mexico, it's, say, Panama, Costa Rica, Paraguay, Dubai, something like that. Well, I think that I think that the lower your taxes, the greater the benefit in life generally. Um, I mean, you know, these are just they're not even business decisions, right? I mean, they're just decisions based on how people, you know, feel they want to they want to live their lives. I don't I don't think that the taxation is is the big problem here. I think taxation is a manifestation of a certain kind of regulation, mm -hmm. you know, and. I think that, uh, you know, we've reached a point in first world democracies where people are just being choked to death, uh, partly by taxes, partly by forms, you know, regulation, et cetera. Um, you know, uh, I, I think people, um, you know, just I think they need to just ask themselves what kind of life they want. I don't think it should be necessarily driven by tax considerations. Yeah. I think there are plenty of people who are very happy in Canada, you know, as ruthless of a tax system as it is. Um, but I would say also that it is possible to have a very good life in places that don't necessarily have huge taxes. Uh, you know, somehow the example of Ireland always comes to mind for me. Um, you know, very small country, very small population, standard of living's, you know, very, very decent. Uh, you know, they managed to do this, right? You know, with a small population. I mean, sure, you know, part of the industry there is low taxes for U.S. multinationals, but, uh, you know, whatever. Yeah, Ireland would be cool. Um, I do have a couple of questions from Twitter. If we could hit uh, a couple of rapid fire ones, I... Uh, put out a tweet um, just saying, hey, going to be talking to a you know, renunciation expert. If anyone has questions. So we got a few that came in, if you don't mind. Um, one is, what are the parameters for U.S. veterans to renounce and still receive their benefits? I'm not 100% sure of the answer of that. That's come up a lot of times. As I understand the problem, it's this that um, aren't veterans always subject to being called back to duty or something like that? And I don't know a lot about this, but this is what I've heard. And their pensions are dependent on that. I have heard that there, there may be issues with, uh, with U.S. veterans and pensions. But I don't know the answer to that for sure. And... Uh, you know, that's probably the type of thing somebody's going to have to pay some money to get somebody to do a deep dive into. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Quick break from the podcast to tell you about Language Blend, the best new way to learn Spanish. Language Blend was co-founded by Jake Nomada, friend of the podcast, 
decade of experience in Latin America. And Jake and his team, they put everything into this program that they wish they had in terms of how to level up quickly with your Spanish language skills. Because the faster that you can get conversationally fluent in Spanish, the better the experience that you're going to have in Latin America. So go to languageblend.com for more information. Okay, got it. Um, do you have to pay on your attacks on the unrealized capital gains of assets in general? Is that kind of the idea? Well, it's the idea if you're a covered expatriate, yes. So yeah. even well, if you, so if you have a bunch covered. of stocks, if you have a bunch of stocks, you have 2 million in stocks, even though you haven't sold them, you still have to pay tax on the gains as if you had sold them? If you're a covered expatriate. Yeah, okay, just Absolutely. making that clear. Okay, another uh, question from Twitter. Um, can I still go see my family in the US for holidays? I noticed guys like Roger Ver are blocked completely from even giving a speech in Miami. Um, so the answer is uh, yes, but let me explain. Uh, the the person whoever asked the question is is referring to the 1996 Reed Amendment, which in theory allows uh, allows people to be deemed to be excludable from the U.S. if they renounce U.S. citizenship for tax purposes. And that is a lot of work, uh, you know, to get somebody to do that, to get somebody designated like this. Um, so if you renounce, you're treated as a citizen in whatever country you're a citizen of. So, you know, again, Canada is the gold standard, right? Because you don't need a, not only do you not need a visa, you don't even need an ESTA thing. You just show a passport and walk in, no problem. You know, you have access to the country, you're a visitor. If you are a citizen of a visa waiver country, you know, you just right. need to go through the ESTA thing, no problem. Where this becomes an issue is people who are left with citizenship in a country that, you know, where citizens don't presumptively have easy access to the United States. Um, you know, then I think there may be more problems. But let me just also add the following. I think that, you know, whenever I hear people talk about this, uh, I think they would be helped with this additional bit of information, okay? That the bedrock principle in U.S. immigration law, and I believe it's Section 214, but don't hold me to that. But the bedrock principle in the Immigration Nationality Act is that everybody entering the United States is entering with the intent to stay permanently. So they have to be able to show that they have a right to, you know, whatever visa or whatever legal avenue it is they're using to enter the country. Now, what this means is that this can operate as sort of an override to anything else that, well, you know, you might, uh, in some ways you met the requirements for this or that, but we think you're planning on staying permanently, so we'll deny the visa. So theoretically, you know, there's always that kind of problem. But I will say, now moving from the theory to the practical, I have never heard of anybody um, who at least who I've worked with, and I don't know anybody who, you know, there's not a large group of people who do this kind of work. I don't know anybody who's had people denied access to the United States. Um, 
Oh, really? You is don't that, hear uh, about yeah. people getting denied, like Canadians not, not, that not give it based, up? Not based on the renunciation issue. Not based okay. on the renunciation issue. Okay. There is a class of excludable aliens. Now, the determination that you renounce citizenship for tax purposes would put you in that category of excludable aliens, okay? Now, mm-hmm. is Roger Ver, is, is that is that the bit? He's like a crypto guy, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, you know, I, I don't know this guy, right? Or anybody who knows him, but I've read a few things about it. But based on what I've read on this, um, my interpretation of it was that he was more likely denied based on the, the 214 thing that they thought he was planning to stay in the United States, right? Not because What? He- really? I don't think he was trying to stay. I think he's just trying to give a speech, but I guess he'd be in the excludable alien category well, category the, the due to problem, the tax thing. The problem is the problem is not so much the reality. The problem is, you know, what's the perception? Okay, you know, at the border. Now look. You know, let's say you get a second citizenship and, uh, you know, you don't have any evidence of living in that country or you don't have any evidence of living anywhere. You don't have any ties to any other country. You know, that would make it easier for an immigration officer to conclude because you didn't have these ties that perhaps you're planning on staying in the United States. Right. That'd be kind of wild to renounce U.S. citizenship, but then to intend to overstay a tourist visa in the u.s well you know i don't know that it actually is okay necessarily because remember that you have to renounce outside the united states that's why you have to be outside the united states because when you renounce you become an alien right and you have no presumptive right to be in the united states but look I mean, we can go upside down, sideways, and diagonally on this. And I think that almost anybody can find an example to suggest that their, you know, their position on this is correct. What I will say is this, that I've seen absolutely no evidence of anybody who's renounced U.S. citizenship having problems with access to the United States for visiting or whatever. That's good. That's good. Because I think uh, another question we got from a uh, previous podcast guest, Addy Core. And he said, um, his question was, if I have EU American dual citizenship, is there a, any major loss for renouncing? You know, will I be able to go back if I'm not um, making money in the US? I don't need the US to make money. I just want to be able to go back. I have a European passport. I should get the ESTA waiver or whatever. Is there any, and his, his, his I like what he said here. I want to know if I'm missing any potential blind spots. I don't think you're missing any potential blind spot particularly, okay? But I I think that, as I said before, that it's worth remembering that, uh, you know, all of these uh, visas or, or, you know, uh, avenues for being admitted to the United States are always subject to the override that if they think you're planning on staying uh, permanently that uh, you know they're not going to admit you i don't think that this is a problem for people at least not yet and i don't think that it will become a problem when you get an immigration law one of the things you got to understand is 
that there's the law and there's the regulations, okay? Law comes from Congress. The regulations can be changed by the administration. So who knows? Okay, definitely makes sense. Uh, if I'm going on and off mute, it's because they're doing, there's like a lawnmower guy near here. Um, but I, I think I've pretty much exhausted all my questions that I have. I mean, we really spent the majority of the episode going over the covered expatriate status and basically talking about strategies on how to avoid that because that definitely sounds like something that people want to avoid if they can. Um, any other topics that you'd, you'd like to add? This is expensive. Hey, I have a question for you, John, before we wrap up. What's your over-under on Canada implementing citizenship-based taxation? A lot of people have been predicting this. Um, I don't think it's very, very likely at all, uh, partly because uh, it's not easy to sever tax residency from Canada. Uh, you know, tax residency in Canada is based on a test called being ordinarily resident. And what that means, if, if your center of gravity, you know, if your spouse and kids are in Canada, you're going to be a tax resident, uh, you know, et cetera, or the 183 day thing. And Canada also imposes uh, a departure tax. It's not as brutal as the U.S. tax because it excludes pensions, but it is a departure tax. Um, I think that because you can't just leave Canada and, uh, and also, uh, you know, if you become a treaty non-resident, you're still subject to the departure tax. I don't think that Canada's got any problems with this at all, frankly. Um, you know, you leave, you pay the departure tax. I mean, I would think that Canada would be wanting to get rid of people. So they, you know, shake them down for... I don't think it's very likely. Um, why? What are you? What are you hearing? Uh, Nomad capitalist has predicted uh, could be as soon as within the next five to ten years. I definitely see it. I mean, the deficit keeps growing, and Canada likes copying everything the U.S. does. Um, and so many Canadians are starting to leave for more than six months a year and get tax residency in Costa Rica and whatever. And they, they probably want to do something to cut down on that. Also Australia implemented like a light form of citizenship based taxation recently with some weird rules and it's not all or nothing. I feel like some countries are starting to introduce elements of citizenship based taxation, not as all out as the U S but pieces of it inspired by the U S and I'm sure it'll creep into larger and more well, onerous taxation over time. Yeah. So what you're talking about are, you know, rules that make it more difficult to sever tax residency with Canada. Okay. Um, I would agree that I think all of these countries are likely to um, pay more attention to what it means to sever tax residency. But I, you know, I think this is partly the result of the whole remote work uh, thing, you know, et cetera. I mean, if somebody, you know, let's say a Canadian moves to uh, anywhere, uh, say the Bahamas, uh, 
and you know works on their laptop there and you know presumably they're you know is their work sourced outside Canada I don't know I think it might be I think that I think that this is a problem that a lot of countries are dealing with the digital nomad the remote worker thing um, but this has nothing to do with citizenship okay what this has to do with is uh, you know are you able to uh, define work as being sourced outside the country etc yeah it's two things right it's it's the like you said it's going to get harder to um to leave the tax residency and leave the tax system of a lot of these countries of canada of europe etc and then the other piece i guess is maybe countries implementing more citizenship based taxation so i think two different things but i think they are interrelated well we'll see um I'm going to guess no on the citizenship taxation thing. Um, I think that, you know, that this type of decision is so monumental that I think they probably look, all kinds of should look at the U.S. experience and the horror of it. So I'm going to guess no on that. Uh, but that's a different issue from, uh, you know, playing around with the rules for severing tax residency and and rules for income sources and things like that. So we'll see. I mean, I do agree that taxation is becoming a bigger and bigger problem. Um, and I think that people ought to be paying attention to that. You know, because of that, I do agree that generally speaking, uh, <laughs> the more opportunities people have to live outside their country of residence, definitely the better. Um, we'll see. But something as draconian as the U.S. system, uh, I would find hard to imagine. <laughs> Maybe we can leave it on that. So uh, uh, why don't we leave it on this? Yeah. It's because of U.S. citizenship taxation, the sun never sets on the injustice of the U.S. tax. <laughs> well, we can only thank justice warriors like yourself john for fighting the good fight helping u.s citizens uh get this whole mess sorted out um obviously you have a very specialized skill set so we're very happy that you took the time today to speak with us um maybe you could take this moment to tell people how they can get in touch with you yeah, sure. Well, um, you know, if you were to go to my website, which is citizenshipsolutionsplural.ca, citizenshipsolutions.ca, or um, I guess a lot of people are aware of me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is expatriationlaw, e expatriation, E-X-P-A-T-R-I-A-T-I-O-N law. And um you know, I'd be glad to uh, help you think your way through this problem, which is uh, not a simple problem. I mean, let me say this. Look, all citizenships have value, okay? And there are people who are willing to pay, look at the EB-5 program, you know, substantial money to get U.S. citizenship, or in that case, the green card leaving the citizenship. Um, I don't think they're fully informed that, you know, that's my view of that particular program, 
but this is all relative, right? I mean, it's one thing for, you know, people like me who are sitting here in a first world democracy, you know, to downplay the value of U.S. citizenship. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of people in the world who would be glad to have it. And I think that that's worth being part of the thought process and the discussion. Yep. Everyone's citizenship situation is different. And I guess we can only recommend that people reach out to John Richardson personally if they want help with their situation. Uh, I'd add you could probably mention My Latin Life, that you heard about John through My Latin Life, and John will treat you super nice. Um, again, John Richardson, counselor for U.S. persons abroad. This has been another episode of the My Latin Life podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening.